so i um i started to i i think i drafted three different talks for today but i'm not going to actually do any of them because the first one was a very academic talk covering the history and the trends of the women's movement in india and i got all these statistics together and it was so boring that i just wanted to rip my own head off so i just decided that I, you can google that stuff um and i want to give a different talk um but before i begin to talk about rape in india i want to make one thing very clear um violence a couple of things violence against women is not just sexual violence and we shouldn't just put it off to the side and violence against women is definitely not just an indian problem so i don't want anyone to leave this room thinking oh it's so awful over there okay it affects every one of you if you are fortunate and untouched by it then you definitely know someone who has not been so fortunate and if you've been reading the papers you'll see in the last few weeks rape on college rape in colleges has been a lot in the news there have been rapes at harvard at amherst lots of places so please don't make the mistake of thinking that it's an academic discussion we're having about some place just far away it's it's not it involves all of us here um so i'm going to talk about sexual violence in india through the lens that i know best which is my own life um i'm going to talk about am i talking too fast no i'm going to talk about violence and silence um two words that rhyme and that go together and they shouldn't go together um and i'm going to talk about class and family and while i was thinking about this i realized that i also need to talk about something else which is technology because technology really affects this whole what's different and what's the same so i i only have a few minutes to skim over all these things so i hope that when i'm done you'll ask me lots of questions so that we can anything that you want to know more about or discuss we can do that so first i just want to introduce my own story because i don't know who's read what um when i was 17 years old i was in india and i i was i had gone out for a walk near my home with a male friend and i was abducted and gang raped um the guys who got us were going to kill us but they let us go when we i mean it was a long ordeal and they let us go when we promised that we would never tell anyone um because that's what you did in india you never told anyone so they believed us and they let us go then we went home and told everyone we told the police we told the family we told the doctor we told i told everyone and but nothing happened that was india 30 years ago there was there were no charges there was no nothing you know everybody went home my friend and i were, were hurt but we got over our injuries and i was in india at that time with my father and my grandmother and one thing that happened uh 3 days after my rape was that there was a big story in the papers and it was a story of a couple a, a husband and wife who were riding home one night on their uh, motorcycle or scooter or something and they were surrounded by a gang of men much like we were they took the woman and they took off with her so then the man went home went to bed or whatever he did he he didn't report it to anyone he left he went there and the next morning the woman came back with her torn clothes or whatever she came in she walked past him she went to the kitchen she doused herself with kerosene and she killed herself and the way the story was presented in the papers was what a good woman you know she her, she saved her honor she saved her husband's honor after all rape is worse than death even death is better so i was 17 this was really startling for me to read 3 days after the same thing had happened to me and luckily my father was who's indian was totally out of touch with, with the general culture and also thought this was insane 
So we just, but I want to say the story in lieu of presenting with statistics because this was the prevailing attitude that death is better and if it happens to you, you're just better off dead. And she was lauded as a good wife, a good woman. And nobody, nobody questioned why the man didn't try to get her back or report it to anyone. And so for everything that's changed, that, that attitude is there in extreme form there. And I've, I've seen it plenty here as well. So I want to sort of present those two. So imagine my state. This has happened to me. I read the story. I'm all befuddled. And then three weeks later, I come to America and I start college. And that was that. And then uh, for the next three decades, I carried on, had a fine life. I, I always had a lot to do with sexual assault. I ran a rape crisis center here. And I've written a lot about it, among other things. So I've always been connected to the issue. But it was always really important for me to not define myself by that one thing. So I never really talked about my own, not because not I didn't want to, but just because it becomes kind of who you are. And so I felt like I successfully put it behind me until December 16, 2012. And I don't know if you guys know, do you know the story of what happened then? Or should I tell it? Um, so this was in India, December, 20, December 16, 2012. It was a very similar story to mine, except it had a much worse ending. <laughs> It was a young woman, I think she was 22 or 23, who was out with a guy in the city. They were going to the movies. I think they actually they were going to see Life of Pi. And they were going to the movies, and they were abducted by a group of men. And she was raped, and they were both tortured, and she was killed. Um, and for some reason, this really touched a chord in India. And there was massive, massive, massive protest for the first time ever. And the country just basically went crazy. And in all those 30 years, in all those 30 years, you know, nobody had, nobody had, I was the only person who'd ever written about rape. And the reason I wrote about rape is that when I came back to America, after being, after being raped, I started college. Then when I got to my senior year, I thought, oh, how exciting. I'll go back and write about rape in India because it's so important and it's such a big deal and I'll be the first person to write about it. So I got money. I got research money and I went back home and I, went to start interviewing people. And it was really shocking because whoever I interviewed said, there's no rape in India. Um, and the only people who acknowledged that rape even existed were the leftists. And I, I consider myself a leftist in India, people who want to fight the class struggle and, and fight the caste system. But the thing is, they really put rape in this very non-feminist context. You had to have a, my rape was not politically correct because I was an upper class woman and I had been raped by what they consider lower class men. So the only rapes that was okay to talk about was when the police raped prisoners or when the landlords raped the tribals. That was okay, but I was not, you know, I didn't fit into anybody's analysis. So this made me feel more and more crazy because I felt like I can't possibly be the only one. And also I was 20, an age at which you don't always think about what you're going to do. So I, I went ahead and I wrote an article for a women's magazine in India with my full color photograph and my name and everything saying that, look, this happened to me. I'm not at all ashamed. I didn't do anything wrong. Here I am. I've survived. I'm having a happy life. And this was, this was a big deal. But there was no internet back to technology. So a few people, the women's movement read the magazine. My uncle threatened to disown me. My parents laughed at him. Everything was fine. And the whole thing died down. And I literally forgot about it for the next 30 years. Then when we go back to this December, 16th thing, it all happened, there was all this protest, people were really hungry for information and stories, but there were none. 
So it just so ha so one day I was it was New Year's Day I remember it was New Year's Eve I think last year I was on a train I checked my email on my phone and I got an email from a friend in Delhi who said check out what's trending on Facebook and I don't even have a Facebook page so I had no idea what this even meant and I clicked the thing and there was my photograph from when I was 20 years old and the old article and then all hell broke loose because nobody had any I suddenly became the thing that I really didn't want to be which was the poster child for rape because this was the only story people had so everybody grabbed onto it people started calling my whole extended family many of which had no idea this had ever happened were reading about it in every possible language <laughs> in the Indian papers we, you know we it, it was crazy and media started calling me and I just wanted to crawl away and hide because I thought all the work I've done over all these years to try to get away from this it's come back so then after talking a lot with my family I decided that I didn't want that one thing to be the, the only thing I've said about rape because that was a 20 year old's voice so I wrote this piece for the New York Times about what it was like 30 years later and then everything really went crazy um, but that was okay because that I chose uh, so I wrote this piece and then and then every I got so many emails I got thousands and thousands of emails from people all over the world from Saudi Arabia from India from Copenhagen from Africa from everywhere lots and lots of men lots of women some were negative most were really positive and a lot of them were women saying you know this happened to me and I never told anyone and so that that's now that's 2013 so it really was shocking to me so on the global level it was shocking and also in my own life it was really I had no idea how many people read the New York Times so suddenly I have a small daughter we had to explain this to her we had to explain it to my nephews we had to explain it to this you know everybody in school read it it was talked about it was a big deal but but it was good because you know I, I was happy to be there and I think that since then a couple of people have come out and told their stories but I'm not sure so after and I, I just felt like what was wrong with the story was that people kept saying how brave it was to talk about it but that to me is wrong because it speaks to the unhealthy relationship between violence and silence why should it be I didn't why it's a major trauma to be raped but why is it a major trauma to talk about it I didn't I didn't commit the crime I'm not the only one I'm sure many people in this room know someone and we just keep quiet and we and we let men get away with it and we do a huge disservice to our children um, so rape is horrendous but it's not more horrendous than genocide or ethnic cleansing or war a lot of other things but somehow those things are okay to talk about so I feel like if there's anything we take away from here it should be that we should not put rape into its own little gruesome compartment where it's worse than everything else because it's bad but it's not worse than everything else um, so after I was dragged into it willy-nilly I started to pay attention to the what, what was going on in India after December 16th and I was just amazed to see the protests on the street women women's women in the women's movement have been marching against rape for 40 years in India but in these little marches and it's great but no one pays that much attention and suddenly there were thousands and thousands of people on the street there were men women children rich poor people of all classes together and it looked really great and really inspiring and it was great but if you look closely some of it wasn't so great there was still a lot of talk of women's honor a lot of men who out there were not there necessarily for women's rights but they were there to protect women to protect family honor which to me is just doesn't compute because why should women be the repository of honor for everybody else um, and there was a lot of general bloodthirstiness 
which always reminds me of the kind of anger that rapists have. I don't like to see that kind of anger, even in a righteous cause. Mm. There was some really hateful backlash. One minister said that all the women who were protesting were dented and painted, like the old cars in India. Um, so many of us took this as a compliment, but I don't think he meant it that way. Um, but still, people were talking about rape for the first time, and some really remarkable things came out of it. And one of the things was the, this uh, group called the Justice Verma Committee. Um, and after the uproar, what happened is that the government, about 10 days after the uproar, they appointed a commission to propose legal reforms to better address gender-based violence. And it was headed by three people. There was Justice Verma, who was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, a former. There was Laila Seth, who was a former judge of the High Court, and who is also the mother of Vikram Seth, the fabulous novelist, if any of you have read his stuff. Um, and then the third member was the former Solicitor General of India. So forming a committee is no big deal, but this committee is different. Um, first of all, it submitted its report in a month, which is just mind-boggling, because Indian bureaucracy sort of moves in geologic time. No, so usually it takes 10 years or so. So it did it a month. And two things really stood out for me. One was the process. Um, what happened is that as soon as the committee was formed, they opened. They said, we want to hear from the Indian people. What do people want? What do people want in terms of protecting women's rights? And send us emails, send us letters. And in three weeks, 80,000 people wrote in, which was just stunning. So 80,000 people wrote. And the other thing that was amazing was the report when it actually came out. It's over 500 pages long. And it is an excellent feminist document. It's really, we were, all of us were so blown away that this came out of the government. And of course, uh, my favorite part was that they quoted me, <laughs> which was really pleasing. Because for 30 years, I've been screaming about how terrible the Indian government is. So they, the fact that they quoted me as an expert was very exciting. But besides that, they also made recommendations on laws related to rape, sexual harassment, trafficking, child sexual abuse. All these things are huge problems. So they didn't just put rape by strangers on the street. They really made it inclusive. Um, they talked about police, medical exams. Um, there was much to celebrate. And the most important thing was that the committee acknowledged that sexual violence is part of the fabric of society. It's not just something committed by aliens from outer space that has nothing to do with anything else. And it's hard to explain how big a deal that is. I, I think it's a big deal anywhere, but in a context like India, it's a huge deal. Um, they said that rape and sexual assault are not merely crimes of passion, but an expression of power, which again is, might seem obvious to some of us, but it, it has never been obvious or stated in India. It recommended that marital rape is a crime be a crime, which is also a big deal in a country where three-year-olds get married to 60-year-olds sometimes. So it's a big deal. Um, it spoke out against stupid terms that Indians use, like outraging a women's modesty. That's what they call harassment. Um, and they even spoke out against the death penalty, which is much too popular in India. Um, if any of you have been following it, there was this case in Bombay where uh, there were a bunch of guys who were going out and raping women in Bombay, and they were just caught, and they were sentenced to hang last week. Um, I personally am very much against the death penalty. Um, so the, and the committee recommended against various things that are sort of always around in India, like this thing called the two-finger test, which is a virginity test for rape victims to de determine if she was a virgin when she got raped. Because she wasn't, then you know how bad can it be? Um, they also recommended that politicians who have committed sexual offenses be disqualified 
from running for office, <laughs> which I thought was good. They even recommended sex education for children. It really, it goes on. It's an amazing document. So all of us who have anything to do with violence against women in India, we were really thrilled when we saw it. So things have changed. Um, based, on, based on the commission's findings, the parliament adopted some amendments. So they expanded the definition of rape and sexual assault. They criminalized acid attacks. Women, women have acid thrown in their faces. They provided for right to medical treatment. They uh, wrote leg legislation to protect women with disabilities, domestic workers, abused wives. All this is good on paper, and it's important that it happens on paper. And essentially, this report was not possible three decades ago. There were no protests like this three decades ago. Three decades ago, there's no way I would have had the experience I had last year where I was driving along a country road with my family. My family has a driver who drives our Jeep. So we were discussing, the driver and I were talking about my rape. This is just like, nobody could have even imagined this. So all that is different, but too much is still the same as well. Um, if things are so different, why am I still the poster child? Why is there still nobody else? And why, why am I still sort of an alien in India for, the, for this one thing? Um, let me give you an example. Last May, um, there were, there's this group of extremely wealthy Indian ladies who live in Long Island. They have lots of money and they're really good people. They give money to women's organizations in India and they invited me to accept some award because I guess they'd read my op-ed. And so I went over there very happy to the country club and they gave me the award. And they were really sweet, but I felt like a, I felt like a Martian the whole time. It, I, because here were all these women, they were Indian women, they'd grown up in India, the same country as I had. But I, it was, they were almost nervous to talk to me. One woman came up to me and said, you know, you're so brave. But if my, if my daughter were raped, I would never let her tell anyone. So I said, okay, well, you know, well, that's kind of up to her and not you. But so there's still that violence and silence thing that goes on. My, my extended family, my immediate family was amazing, but my extended family, the majority of them still haven't said a word to me, even though they've all seen it in the paper on Sunday morning, you know, because our sort does not get raped. So things are better, but despite all the noise, there's still, it's still very quiet in people's homes. And I think it's, the, in America, there's a bit of the same problem, but it's still quiet at home where you might go to take back the night, but how do you bring that, how do you bring that home to yourself, you know? It's too quiet in situations where the important conversations between family members need to happen about dynamics. So I want to talk a little bit about the role of technology in all this. In a funny kind of way, technology shatters the silence, but it also helps to keep it. It also helps to preserve it. So in my own life, like I said, Facebook turned my existence totally upside down. I still don't have a Facebook page because I dread to hear, to think what will come on it. Um, and Technology also helps to preserve the status quo because people mistake sometimes the tool for the solution. For instance, in India, after the whole December, you know, we had the Verma committee and we also, the government started this huge fund of 100 crore rupees, which is around $17 million to make, you know, to, 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 uh, to go towards the safety of women. And a year later, there are two projects that have come out of this. Most of the money is still sitting there. And both the projects have to do with technology. The first has, is this whole big system about setting up an elaborate system of switchboards. And there's a tracking system and a GPS. And if a woman calls in distress from the road, then somehow it's GPS to where she is. And the police go rushing over there and solve the situation. But the thing is, it, and it also talks about 114 control rooms in 114 cities with all these GPS equipment. 
but there's no there's no training in it nobody knows who's going to ban the gps centers nobody knows how to use it what about in villages where there's no electricity it's just there it's the scheme for gpsing rape and then the second thing is an emergency response system which is also a kind of thing where there's surveillance systems in buses and taxis and auto rickshaws that drivers have to legally put in otherwise they lose their license but the thing is who how they can't afford it no one there's no training it's just crazy so and no so more than a year after the finance minister assured us that the government is going to do something for the safety of women there's there's just been these two projects they're all about technology and surveillance and they all talk about protection and not rights i'm not so sure women need protection so much as we need rights um and women's groups in india have made many demands but they've never demanded increased surveillance so <laughs> that's not just just not been high on the list so it's great to know that if you get raped on the streets which is actually the least likely place you're going to get raped someone is tracking it and knows where you are and knows what time it happened and at what coordinates but what happens when you're home you know what happens when your uncle rapes you or you know what what to be doing to change the sexism that permeates every level of society in a in a context like india brothers and fathers get to eat first what does that mean what does that tell you about the position of women boys go to go to school often when girls stay home girls fathers have to pay to get rid of their daughters and boys fathers make little lists of dowry demands so to me all this is connected and those are the things that need to change at a very fundamental level so so much has changed the word rape has probably been said and printed more in the past year and a half in india than in all of human history before so that's amazing that's great but at the micro level things still need to change so i i would actually change my talk to some things have changed um and i i don't really have predictions i don't know what the future holds for indian women but but that's better than the a year ago i wouldn't have said that a year ago i've been just like blah blah it all school all going to be the same predictable now i whether the future is more or less difficult i know one thing for sure and that is that this is a very significant moment in our history this moment in time after the whole protest um i think i was trying to think about a comparison that would apply here and the only thing i could think of is a civil rights movement in this country where it was a huge upheaval it didn't make racism go away any more than the protests in india made rape and sexism go away but it changed the game forever you know suddenly it wasn't quite as acceptable to be racist and suddenly in india it's not quite as acceptable to be sexually violent the genie doesn't go back in the bottle once it comes out so i don't know what will happen but it's a very interesting moment and i'm waiting to see that's it thank you Okay. Um, so I invited Michelle Dancy from the Villanova of the School of Law to respond um, briefly to Silas Hawk, and um, and I'll do that. Okay. okay. And then you'll ask me things. <laughs> okay. Um, so thank you so much for that. I'm grateful to, to meet you and to have heard your talk, and I'm very grateful for all that you've done. Um, and I think. I think you are brave, and I think it is weird that that we call what you've done brave. But I think that you should own that because you are a brave, articulate, wonderful human Excellent. being. Excellent. <laughs> so that's good. Um, so thank you all so much for coming. I'll, I'll be brief. I, 
Normally when I serve as a respondent in an academic context, I'm disagreeing with the person who went before <laughs> me. Um, I can't do that here. Um, but I suppose what I can do is maybe draw some connections um, between some of the things um, that um, Sahelia discussed and some of the things that I've been observing in the United States. I'm a former uh, sexual violence and domestic violence prosecutor. I focus my research and scholarship on the state's response to violence against women, especially around issues of rape and sexual violence, domestic violence, and trafficking. So I spend a lot of time thinking about these things, particularly in the US and in the context of the UK where I previously lived. And actually, I submitted a, a report to the Justice Burma Committee, so I'm, I'm pleased. It worries me a little bit that with 80,000 letters and 500 pages, they got it done in a month. <laughs> it's <laughs> so good. It. It's if well it, done. Yeah. How could they possibly have read all the things that were <laughs> But I agree, it was an excellent report. Yeah. And it is a, an interesting uh, time in India. And I think if I could analogize it a little bit to some of the changes that we saw in the United States back in the very late 1970s up through the early 1990s, we went from a context where rape was defined very narrowly, excluded marital rape. So it just simply wasn't, there was no such thing as marital rape as far as the law was concerned. If a man raped his wife, well, maybe it was a battery, but it's not going to get called a rape. And so that was abolished around the, finally by 92 everywhere in the United States. Um, and things such as requiring a woman to resist to the utmost because her honor was being violated. That was the whole idea behind this, this requirement that women resist to the utmost or otherwise it doesn't count as rape. Um, that requirement was abolished as well. There were evidentiary requirements in order to prosecute rape throughout uh, all of the common law world. Um, but in the United States during this time frame of the kind of second wave feminist movement, we were able to reform those laws such that um, just for one key example, it used to be the case that there was always a requirement of corroboration um, because the thought was that the, an accusation of rape is very easy to make, but it's very difficult to defend against, and so we have to make sure that there's always corroboration, because otherwise we just have to assume that the woman is lying. And that was the official evidentiary position of the law on that uh, matter. And again, it was reformed during this time of massive rape reform in the late 70s to early 90s. And that's great. And as I'm going to quote you now, all this is good on paper, and, and the paper looks better. So if you look at the law in the books now in the United States, you might be tempted to think, wow, those feminist reformers, they did such a great job. Look, everything's fixed. But then you'd be wrong. Um, and, and just in recent two, last two, three years, we've come to realize how very wrong that is. And I just want to point out a few things. Uh, to demonstrate how the, the, what was good on paper, the law in the books, did not get translated to the law in practice. Um, there are any number of cities throughout the United States where investigative journalists have uncovered massive uh, unfounding of rape reports by police, where the police uh, take a, a rape report and they write a memo on it and they give it to their supervisor and their supervisor throws <coughs> it away or they write a memo and there's a piece of paper somewhere in the police department about that rape, but it never gets opened as an actual file. So that means it never gets reported to the FBI in the uniform crime reports that the FBI keeps. And this is where we get all of our statistics about violent crime in the United States. So if you, you know, are looking to see what's the crime rate in this city, is it going up or is it going down, you're gonna be uh, 
looking at information from the FBI's uniform crime reports. <coughs> Starting in the early 1990s, there has been a pretty massive decline in violent crime throughout the United States in things like murder, robbery, and according to the statistics, rape. But recently we've found out that a lot of jurisdictions, including Philadelphia, Baltimore, St. Louis, New York City, New Orleans, and there's a scathing <coughs> report by Human Rights Watch on the Metropolitan Police in Washington, D.C. that I recommend to you. If you just Google Human Rights Watch Metropolitan Police Rape, you'll find it. Um, and so recently, a colleague of mine, Corey Rayburn Young, who's a law professor um, at Kansas, he looked at all these investigative reports of the law in practice on rape and said, well, you know, you would expect that um, that now that we've reformed these laws, that they're actually being used. But in fact, what you find is that there's about a million rape cases that have been reported to the police that actually have not gone <coughs> anywhere and don't even show up in the official statistics. And I, I won't get into the details of his methodology, but I can forward you the article where he does this analysis. And it's just incredibly damning and disappointing and um, heartbreaking to see that what we're actual accomplishments in the law on paper back in the late 70s to early 90s have been translated to nothing in practice, um, to nothing. Now, there is still a corroboration requirement in the United States for rape. There just is. I mean, in practice, there is. And it happens at the level of the police where they say, well, it's a he said, she said, and so we can't go for it. How do we know who to believe? Well, if you believe her and you don't believe him, then you can go forward. The law lets you but they won't take it forward. They hand it off, let's say they're, they're, they want to hand it off to the prosecutors. And the prosecutor said, well, a jury in this jurisdiction, just they won't convict, so I'm not gonna bring this case forward. And so even if it does get brought to the prosecutor, it gets dumped. And then maybe some aggressive prosecutor charges it, but then they think, well, it's not really worth our resources, maybe we'll just plead it out to a simple battery or dismiss it. And little by little, it's called attrition. These cases, even if they manage to get into the system, never get to a conviction for the actual crime that was committed, or very, very rarely. Certainly no more frequently than they did before the rape law reforms. Um, and so that's just really depressing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, let me end on a more hopeful note. <laughs> um, I want to pick up on something you said about breaking the silence. Mm -hmm. And I, I agree with you. I think that's key. Um, you need to hold police accountable. We need to hold prosecutors accountable. We need to hold our friends accountable before rapes even take place, right? We need bystander intervention. We need to talk about this, not just with the people who are willing to come into this room on a beautiful afternoon after a horrid winter. <laughs> and, you know, you, you guys are talking about this. I'm preaching to the converted here, but we need to talk about it more widely. And, and until we can create juries that are willing to convict in cases without 10 eyewitnesses, uh, we need to keep talking about it. We need to come to things like take back the night rallies. And, and I, unfortunately, the winter was so awful that we never did get to do the break the chain for V-Day. But next year, if any of you are around, God willing, the weather will be better. And you can come out and do a flash mob. Because no, we did do it. We, we did, did it a week later. Oh, I couldn't make it. I had to teach. Right. But anyway, I'll be with you next year. <laughs> and and you know, we, need to, we need to do those things to keep the conversation going, to heighten awareness, and to, to make it the case that this isn't something that is silent and a violation of, of woman or girl's honor. But this is a, a social justice issue that impacts all of us. So thank you for coming today, and please spread the word. And ask questions if this time. Yeah. yeah.
could open up the floor to questions um, for both Michelle and Sahela and have a conversation. I mean, really, I think for all of us are hope to have a, more of a conversation than a kind of one-way um, talk. Yeah. Right. So I have a thought that links both talks. Um, when you, Sahela, were saying that the analogous moment is the civil rights movement, I was thinking the analogous moment was the Trayvon Martin case. <coughs> Which in That's the United true. States raised, it's a case that raised the yeah. issue of race and justice. Around the same time that there was that case, there was a guy in Ohio who kidnapped the three girls and had them. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was an athlete who had raped or abused his wife. And at the same time that the nation was mobilized in important ways around questions of race and justice, all of the cases of gender based violence, which we don't even talk about in the United States in public discourse. We d it's like a one-off. Well, there's that crazy guy in Ohio, then there's the crazy guy in- The Steubenville. Mm -hmm. right? That was in at the same time as, yeah. I mean, in yeah. addition to these raids, what are most recent things in the news? A rapper punched his fiance, I heard in the radio today, someone else, but these are all one-offs. So yeah. we don't have a national conversation in this country. I mean, just furthering your thing of law in the books versus law in action. We don't have a national conversation in the same way India, India suddenly does, does yeah. around a women's movement or a people's movement around the problem of gender-based violence. And I'm one, and, and which is interesting, because Suhila, you began by saying, you know, it, we as Americans going back, you know, to the 19th century, always look at women's oppression as being their problem in the, in the mm -hmm. third world. That's how, look at the, how women are treated in Afghanistan and in India, and we tend not to look at ourselves in similar terms, and it's interesting that in contrast to that, this vibrant women's movement in India, which stands in stark contrast to where is the women's <coughs> movement in the United States today? When it comes to why do we allow these incidents to be individualized rather than protesting them as issues of systematic violence? I don't know if you have any... <laughs> I mean, that's the reason I love the Verma Committee report, because suddenly it was like this feminist manifesto link, making these links, you know, which which certainly the government had never made before. So I don't know. But I know that this whole business of saying it's bad over there is not just an American, it's not just an American fallacy. We all do it. I mean, when, I, when my family moved to America, all my school friends felt very sorry for me because they said, you'll have to find your own husband there. You know, <laughs> here our parents find our own husbands. We're just so much better off. So. <laughs> yeah. I actually have a question. I was just wondering when Michelle was talking whether this report that this that the government created is it gonna is it the same kind of case that it's on paper there's this thing on paper and then in practice are things actually I mean it it just seems like such a huge um, institutionalized enculturated mm -hmm. problem in India right it so, is I mean, but just like here not yeah. It is, but for one thing, it's early days to tell, and the things that they have done haven't been so great so far, like this stupid GPS. I mean, I'm all very pro-GPS, but it doesn't seem to really fit in this context. But it's soon to run, and I, I see, I, I haven't spent, I've not spent much time in India since this, but even the little time I spent, like I said, the conversation with my driver, things are really different. People are actually saying the word, mm -hmm. and that, that has to be a big deal. And I, I see the difference it made in my own family. We consider ourselves quite liberated but suddenly we were in the position of you know I had an 11 year old and had to explain all this to her I have two nephews who were 12 and 10 they were all you know they all have the same last name they, they, they were reading it in school and it really brought home to me how 
what ha it's great that we had the Verma committee, but it brought home to me how we have so much baggage with us and we need to divest our children of that baggage. I mean, I'll, t I'll give an example of talking to my child, and I think this really gets to the heart of the issue, which is that I, I got myself into this whole pickle of, she already luckily, she knew what rape was, because be being asked, we explained all that to her at age zero. Um, so she knew all that, but she, I, it had never been the time to tell her that it happened to me, because it just never came up. Then, when all this was coming out in the press and reporters were calling, I found myself huddled in the room whispering to some reporter, and I thought, this is, talk about silence. Why am I hiding this from her? And I got myself to this whole tangle about how to tell her she'd be so traumatized. How would I have felt if my mother had told me when I was 11? And then my husband, who's extremely smart, said, you know, you're putting all your baggage onto them, onto these kids. She hasn't grown up thinking that she sees you, you're this happy person. She's not going to think you're broken because you're not. She, does, she hasn't grown up thinking it's this terrible thing that's going to destroy you forever. She doesn't have all that. You have all that. So why not just tell her? And we just told her. And she was like, yeah, pass the toast. You know, <laughs> she, she, and in time it'll sink in. But I think what a difference it would have made to me if I had been 11 and I had known another human being to whom this had happened. I was 17, I thought that was the only person in the world. And it, it, when I finally met another woman who said she'd been raped, it was, it was amazing because no one talked. So I think that that's the level at which maybe it's happening a little more only because there it is in the papers and people have to mention it to their kids or talk about it. So that's where the change will come and that's where all of us, you know, in our daily lives, the little things we do make a huge difference. And for us, educating, I have a daughter and two nephews and educating the nephews is way more important than educating the daughter because they have to become good men. That's, that's what's needed. Uh, I just want to make a comment about this, and thank you both. This was magnificent. Um, if I ask any of the students in my classes, do they know anyone that has been sexually assaulted? Almost every single one does, right? And they may indeed talk far more openly about it than in India. But there is such a reluctance to get involved with initiatives that address sexual violence as if something will be lost <coughs> if we give ourselves over to deal with this issue. I know in the past, like maybe 10 or more years ago, more people on campus were getting involved with it as long as it was just as a health issue, a social health issue. When you begin to see it in terms of gender politics, male dominance or whatever, then people like wanted to back off. So it's really interesting how all of us or many of us, you know, are complicit in sort of supporting this culture in different ways. I'm going to stand in case anyone's too shy to raise their hand and wants to ask a question. See? Well, I have nothing to say to that because every man I know who says a feminist is quite pleased with themselves, and I, 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 I'm not the person to answer that. Yeah. So I, I, I guess my sense is that it's getting a little bit better. Um, I mean, it, you know, it, 
there's still a long way to go, but I think there are I think there are both men and women who are committed to ideals of gender equality and you know, very happy to stand up against violence against women uh, who might still not feel comfortable with the label feminist. I, I teach a course in feminist legal theory and I always start out with this, and I got a couple of my students right here with me. Um, and I always start out this semester just asking people if they self-identify as feminists. And I, every year I find that there are a, a number of people who despite the fact that they're taking a course called feminist legal theory um, and seem to agree with a lot of the tenets that I associate with my own self-identified feminist feminism um, still don't like the the label, and it's you know it's got a lot of social baggage and whatever. And I, I, if if people are just committed to respect nonviolence and holding other people accountable, not being blind to the sexism around them, I guess I I never get too concerned about what label they're wearing. Yeah, who cares what you call yourself? I mean, just like show some respect. It doesn't matter. What, what you call yourself, really, I think. <coughs> Go ahead. The oh, I was gonna You're ask, next. Okay. Thanks for the, for the talk. Um, I was going to ask a question about the, has the, the women's movement in India been able to define new sets of goals now that there is this wonderful document that is pushing policy and legislation in a new direction? What's the next step forward in terms of the women's movement, and because it, it going off of uh, Dempsey. Professor Dempsey, what, what you were talking about in the, in the U.S., where their legislation changed and legal terms changed, and there was this expanded view of rape and violence against women, but then in terms of how the actual practitioners of the law or the criminal system, they didn't change behavior. So in terms of making this something that can translate into every day, does that create a new sort of, you know, goals for the women's movement and have they articulated this? Um, well, for one thing, I feel like a bit of a fraud because I'm here, so I can't really speak for them. But so I'm, I, I can't pretend that I'm there on the ground doing it, but I know plenty of women who are and I go back and forth, so I know a little bit. And I think it's definitely galvanized people who have been working on these issues all along. So that's great. They've taken the committee report, they've run with it. They're definitely showing up in courts, and there's there's a lot of other battles going on mm -hmm. right now. Not just the sexual. There's a I don't know if you know about the three the three seventy seven law. We had this uh, when the British ruled India, they criminalized homosexuality, and that law has been on the books, criminalizing it all along. No one paid much attention to it. Everybody just did their thing. Then there was a suit brought to strike down that, to, to decriminalize homosexuality. And a couple of years ago, there was worldwide celebration because an Indian, the Supreme Court said, yes, let's strike it down. The whole world celebrated, everyone looked to India as this model of liberalism. It was great. And then the Supreme, or whoever the next court up is, this was the Delhi High Court who struck it down. Then the other side appealed. And we all just expected it to be rubber stamped that the thing has been decriminalized. But a few months ago, the, uh, they said no. They said no, we're putting it back. And so now it's worse because before it was like everybody ignored this law that the British had done to say it's illegal. But, but now we have said, yes, we really think this is illegal. We're putting it back on the books. So that's a huge part because that really speaks to the right of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And we have huge transgender population in India. In fact, on our national identity card, you can identify as male, female, or transgender, which is more than you can do here. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So th they've got this battle going. And so, yes, they are running with it. And a lot of their goals, the women's movement actually is quite split right now about the death penalty. There are plenty of people who think it's great and rapists should be hanged. And then there are those of us who think it's just barbaric and we shouldn't do this. Um, so there, there's, that schism has developed. There will always be a schism. <laughs> but I, you know, they're definitely doing things, for sure. And they're prosecuting legal cases and they're there with eyes wide open. There's a whole new generation involved now, which is great. Things has to change on the fundamental uh, level, like at the family. But realistically, I don't know the population right now. I don't know. Like, there's six billion people, seven billion people in the world. How do we get not just our society, but different societies to change their view at the family level without, while still keeping like that freedom <coughs> of thought, freedom of because even some people fundamentally believe in some in a certain way, even though it's harmful for them when it hits them, but they still want to hold on to it. So it's like, how do you really change people's thing in this one-alike way without hindering their freedom? Well, I'm not sure there is just one way. I'm, I'm not sure that we all have one way that, like, I don't have one way I want everyone to be, necessarily. But I know that in my life, I would like to feel that my daughter and my nephews have the same shots in life. And that's my fundamental premise. So I would like to teach them to have that feeling, like the world belongs equally to both of them. Now, I hope that some people in India will follow that. I hope that some people here, if they don't, they don't. I, do, I don't know how much power I have as a person to do this, but I, I've never subscribed to the thing of, you know, culture and tradition is an excuse. I feel like, you know, you're, I can question your culture. If, you know, if it's strong enough, it'll stand up to it. But I, it's like things like female genital, female genital mutilation. We have plenty of that in India too, but no one talks about it because nobody wants to offend the Muslims. But we have it, and I, I think it's a bad thing. I'm going to talk about it. So I don't know. I don't know, but I don't, I don't, I don't agree that what we're trying to do is impose one way of thinking on everyone. What we're more trying to impose is that everyone has a right to think. You know? Because now the one way of thinking is usually, you know, some people in power, whether it's the leading gender or the leading caste, gets to decide what the rules are. It doesn't seem like it's that big a deal to us that everyone can have a say. And I guess if the culture doesn't allow that, then I kind of am against it. Um, so one of the first thoughts that you come up with when you think of sexual assault, and a lot of what this conversation has been about, is sexual assault towards women and women's rights. Mm -hmm. But there's a large population of males yes. who are also sexually assaulted. So how do we bring that Right. Well, the men, the men who are raped are not raped by women for the most part. They're raped by other men. So it's still a question of patriarchy and men asserting their power, whether it's on other women or other men. So I, I, I would like, yeah. Sure, that's fine. Well, I, I really don't, I mean, I, that's fine. I feel like if you look at the statistics, it's really much less likely that a woman will rape a man. So that's, I mean, feel free to have the discussion. I'll, I'll 
have that discussion with my daughter after I'm done with the other one. Um, but it, I, it's definitely an issue. I was a rape crisis counselor. I counseled many men who were raped. They were all raped by other men. And yes, there are. I'm sure it happens that men are assaulted. But women, it's a completely different dynamic. It's not rooted in, it's not acceptable in the same way. And I, I absolutely think we should discuss it if it's an issue. That I'm not against it. But it's not what, it's, I don't feel like it's that related to the things that I'm, I'm working for. But, but I will bring it up with my daughter. <laughs> I actually have a question. So going off that, um, legally in the US, when we're talking about uh, rape cases bring, being brought you know, up the legal ladder or not, is there any difference, or do you know from um, your research, I know it's with women specifically, but if cases of sexual violence against men are, there's less of a chance of them being brought up, or is there any sort of scholarship <coughs> being done in that area? Um, is that, was that a clear question? Sorry. Um, so uh, I'll try to answer it, and you can tell me if, <laughs> if I understood it. Um, so there is, I mean, there's research and scholarship on sexual violence against both men and women. I mean, as, as you stated, mm -hmm. it, the statistics seem to demonstrate that sexual violence against the male gender tends to happen mostly to boys and men in prison. And so men outside of prison, by and large, are the least likely to be victimized uh, by sexual abusers. And if they are, it's still more likely that they would be abused by another man. Um, and while there is the sort of rare case of a woman sexually abusing a man, that doesn't tend to make its way. So that, like the FBI, for example, doesn't keep specific data on female victimization of men versus male victimization of women. And so there's not this kind of fine-grained statistics that would bear out um, those numbers. The, the best data we have is, are from people working in rape crisis centers and um, cases that do get reported to the police. And obviously, for lots of reasons, men are more likely to report. And so the silence around uh, abuse of men is certainly a problem. And it is, you know, when I said we need to, we said we need to break the silence, I don't think we meant yeah. we only need to break the silence yeah. with respect to violence against women. We need to uh, break the silence with respect to all patriarchal violence. It, it's just, um, and to the extent that there are women abusing men, we need to address that too. But it's it's really not as common and not as uh, you know part of this broader patriarchal power structure. Thank you. Hi, um, I have a question. So when you thank you again for the talk, and it was really enlightening. I think that sometimes when we think of domestic violence, we only think about rape. There are also other forms of domestic violence, such as emotional other things that are not maybe emotional or mental, not necessarily physical. So I think that when in the case of both men and be women being victims of domestic violence, we should also look at those aspects because there are men that are in, in dangerous like relationships with women and are being controlled both like met mentally, socially, but not necessarily physically. And I think that's something that should definitely be addressed more often. Because we only think of rape when we think of domestic violence. But there's so many other forms that do exist that aren't necessarily recognized, but should be recognized. Well, generally, domestic violence is battery. That's what people think of as. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, so there's sort of different. I mean, you can categorize things in lots of different ways, right? So you can categorize, um, say, there's domestic abuse. That's one way to categorize it. And within that, there's physically violent abuse, and then there's psychological, mental, emotional abuse. And then there's sexual violence. 
and that can overlap with domestic violence, or it could be non-domestic violence. And so there's different sort of categories you can put it in. And I, I wholly agree with you that in the category of domestic, nonviolent domestic abuse, and sometimes violent domestic abuse, um, women perpetrators is, is you know, I think it's a greater problem there than it is in the context of sexual violence. I think it's very rare for a woman to be sexually abusing a man, but it's more common for a woman to be emotionally abusing or mentally abusing. And that's especially the case with stuff like elder abuse, where it tends to be people of both genders abusing. But see, we also have to remember the context of putting all this in. I mean, yes, there's all kinds of abuse, and there could be some woman who terrorizes her husband, but that's not quite the same context of talking about gender-based violence. She's not necessarily, you know, so we have to keep that separate. And of course, everything needs to be talked about. But, but the, you know, there's different frames of reference for those things. But I, you know, everything is fair game, for sure. I have another question. Do, do you think that the sort of silence around sexual assault um, is connected to the ways that rape cases get, you know, despite the, the on the books laws that, that um, maybe people feel that they can come forward and break the silence and end up getting a plea bargain around battery. I mean, is that, I just was wondering what your... Yeah, so I think it is. I think it's all connected to the uh, cycle of victim blaming. And I think the, there was, I made a note to myself during your talk about, um, uh, when you're talking about violence and silence, uh, uh, you know, why is it that it's deemed such a major trauma to be raped and, and people say, oh, you're so brave. And, I, and I, to me, that resonates very strongly in a context where victims are blamed. So if I get robbed or if I get beaten up on the street or if even if more and more so if my husband beats me up, I can say I have been treated badly in this way and people will say that should not have happened to you. You are not to blame. We are going to take serious action and address this problem. If I come forward and I say I've been raped, the first question is, well, what were you doing? Mm -hmm. Drinking? Did you go? Did, I mean, there are literally, I could, you know, if, if you ever go to law school, your brain will explode first semester when you do crim and you have to read these rape cases, like the justice in a case versus, uh, State versus Rusk, where he's talking about a rape case and he wants to overturn the conviction because she voluntarily went up to his apartment with him. Well, he took her keys and wasn't gonna give them back and in any event. Whether she went up voluntarily to his apartment or not, he said, well, what did she think they were gonna do, play Scrabble? So if you go to somebody's apartment with him, then just, that's it. I mean, you may as well just, as, as you walk past the threshold, just say, well, if I get raped, there's nothing that's gonna happen about it. Because if I, if I tell anybody, the first question is, what did you do to bring it on? And you know, until that changes, until we, until we radically reform our response to people who report their rapes, who are willing to, to speak out about having been sexually assaulted, and we start by believing them and focusing our attention on the perpetrator, um, this is never gonna change. I mean, that's what police officers do. They, they think, oh, well, she was drunk, or oh, well, you know, she went back to his place with him and they started fooling around, so eh, he said, she said, you know, put a memo to the file, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna call this a real case of rape. Um, so that's, you know, until that changes, nothing changes. And that's what we've got to do in this room and outside this room. We've got to change a victim blaming culture. But I think it's, it's that and it's something else too, which is a big part of my fear about writing the New York Times op-ed. Because essentially what I said is, look, this happened to me 30 years ago and I'm fine. Because I think there's this, there's this feeling about rape, that rape is 
I think I was nervous because I wanted to say I was fine because I am fine. But I also did not want to say it was no big deal because it was a big deal. It's a huge deal. And so I think it's hard to talk about rape because it's so, it's so wrapped up in this whole worse than death thing that there's no, there's no middle ground for rape. You're not allowed to, if you go, if I went to war and I had my legs and arms and head, not head, but something <laughs> blown off, you know, it's terribly traumatic. But it would be okay 10 years from now if I was living a happy life. But when you're raped, there's the expectation that if you're living a happy life, then it wasn't so bad. Because, you know, if it was so bad, then why are you living a happy life? So I don't know why we put this thing on rape. And I think that's part of the reason also why it's difficult criminally, it's difficult to prosecute, it's difficult to talk about, because there's this weird assumption that, that we all have in us that it is somehow worse than death. Like, I don't want to stand here saying, oh, it was fine. Because it wasn't, it was a terrible, terrible nightmare thing. But, but it was one thing, it was one bad thing, and actually worse things have happened. Um, so it's very difficult to get those nuances somehow with rape because it's, people are so quick to say, if it wasn't so bad, you must have wanted it, or you must have, you know, why didn't you let them kill you instead? I mean, think how I felt when I saw that woman burnt herself, I was just totally in shock, and it really made me question myself, and luckily I had my father who <laughs> didn't allow any such thing. But I think there's this whole confusion about, you know, can it be bad and you still live to tell the tale and actually have a happy life? It, no. Just a segue and it makes it so difficult for survivors to tell their story because, <laughs> like, well, gosh, if I tell anybody I was raped, then I have to be miserable for the rest of my life. Yeah, or they're going to say the stupidest things, like, oh, well, I would never let that happen to me. I mean, what is that supposed to make me feel, right. you know? So you have to be prepared for people's responses, which now I can laugh at, but it wasn't so easy at 17, you know? Go ahead. Yeah, just uh, speaking on the complexity of the issue, like, are there clear political sides in India at least? Or does it go past like political parties? I think now it's really going past political parties. And we had ministers from both sides saying ridiculous things. And we had ministers from both sides saying reasonable things. But we have elections going on that in fact started today. And I mean, I, there's no question I have an opinion about it. And the guy who probably will become the prime minister has, has a pretty poor record of protecting women and minorities. And it's quite frightening to think about him coming to power. But, but they did kind of cross party lines. And most ministers were pretty dismal about it. Well, I think a law professor can probably say more than I can, but I know that in the U.S. studies have shown that it's not a deterrent. <coughs> but I don't know in India if there's yeah. any. Yeah, I mean, it almost makes it worse in a way to have law reform include really <laughs> draconian punishments um, because it, it feeds on this idea that rape is worse than death and that if you've been raped, then your whole life has to fall apart and the person who did it needs to be killed. Whereas if we took a more sort of measured response that this was a horrible thing that was done. This person does need to be punished. We do need to have deterrence. Um, but to sort of ratchet it down, um, yeah, the, the studies definitely show that the death penalty does not serve a deterrent effect with respect to any crime. But, but I have to say that in my own case, 
even if it were a deterrent, I'd still be against it. Because I really strongly believe that, like the people who are out there screaming for the, the Delhi guys to be hung, they really, they really reminded me of the guys who raped me. There's that same kind of anger. And, and also, what does it say? You know, it's like you're sca not scapegoating because they were terrible people. I mean, I think completely deserve to die. I'm not saying this out of any respect for life. I'd be perfectly happy to kill them myself. But I think, but I think that when you give that kind of power to the state to take away life, that's really dangerous for all of us. That's what I'm against. I'm not wanting them to have some nice. I remember I wrote an op-ed about this. I wrote a column about that. I have a column in India, in a newspaper, about how I'm against the death penalty. You should have seen the stuff, I, the mail I got. Like, does she want to have them, put them up in a five-star hotel her whole life and give them a life? <laughs> no, that's not the point. The point is that what are we saying if we're actually saying that we are telling the government they can kill someone? No. Like that, that is a very dangerous thing to do, I think. Because what makes us any different from any repressive country then? So I, I, I don't like that. I mean, I, would, I think that, you know, my solution is lock the rapist in the room with the victim's mother for five minutes and see what happens to them. And let there be no consequences. But so I, I think the deterrent thing is a good question. But even if it were a deterrent, I would say that's not what you do. I, and frankly, I'd rather see these guys suffer in jail than just die and get it over with. But that, you know, many people don't agree with that and are very pro. Um, one of the things that uh, sexual assault victims are often told are to kind of like forgive the person that sexually assaulted them. What is your take on that? Um, of whether or not the person who was raped, molested, whichever, uh, whether or not they should go through the process of forgiving the person who did that to them? And um, what, what did you do to kind of like get well, I think it's a completely personal. I, I can't imagine having a rule. I think it's up to you if you forgive them or not. I, who, who am I to tell somebody else? I have no, I have no idea what, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not God. I don't know what, if, for some people that might be a good feeling. For some people they might want to hold on to the anger. For me personally, it was very um, difficult because we could not, there was no prosecution because even though we called the police, it was, you know, it was, India 30 years ago, they, the police were completely startled. They, <laughs> they didn't know what hit them because they weren't used to people reporting rape. And I live in a very big house in India with servants and this and that. And the police came. And there I was, and I was 17 years old. I had my hair open, which nobody does. I, I was wearing blue jeans. I had gone with a boy. I was like, how can this, you know, it was so clear to them that I was in the wrong. Um, and But my father insisted that you know, that something should be done. And then I was also a leftist in my views, and I thought that I didn't, I didn't, part of me didn't want to prosecute them because India is so unfair. It's like, it's like women who don't, white women who might choose not to prosecute black men here because the justice system is so screwed up that I could have gone out on the road that night and picked out any four people, and the, the police would have beaten them up for me and put them in jail. So it wasn't a fair system. So I was all tangled up in my 17-year-old head of how I wanted to be fair even though these guys had just almost killed me and I was bleeding and all the stuff. So there was that. And then the police really did not want to write down that they had a rape case in their jurisdiction. So they, you know, we kept trying to say, go find them. But it was very, we couldn't. And they kept upping the ante more and more. First they said that, um, they made us go through the story and all. Then they said that, because I was 17, they said that if you report it, then the law, according to the law, we have to lock you up in a remand home for your protection. 
which means that I've been there for years and the rapist probably from the remand home because it's full of criminals. So I'd have probably been raped there again. And I, could, I was about to go to college in America. I had to come in three weeks. I would not have been able to go. And there was no way I was going to leave my house and go live in this. So it, they just made it worse and worse. And finally, my father said, get out of my house. So there were 15 policemen. And they said, we can't leave unless we put something in writing. Why were we here? So I'm actually an official statistic of someone who lied. Because I had to write a letter saying nothing happened. And they left. And I still regret that letter. But then in terms of the forgiving the rapists, it never came. It, I, I didn't spare them that much thought. I have neither forgiven them nor not forgiven them. I really couldn't care less. You know, I was frightened for years because they had said that they would kill me if they ever saw me again. And every time I went home, I was frightened. But then, you know, my life is the best revenge. I got to write about them in the New York Times. I got to live my life. It's fine. I don't think about them particularly. But I'm me, somebody else. You know, might might be different. So I I don't know. I can't. I don't know if you have been. I can just say that the criminal justice system in the U.S. anyway, in Australia and other places as well. I don't know how extensive, if at all, this has taken hold in India. Is moving in some cases toward a restorative justice uh, and. I, there's a lot about restorative justice. Like the truth and reconciliation well. thing in Rwanda. Yes, yeah. yes, but it's more sort of one-on-one. -on -one, right. So, right. Um, and, and you can see where it sort of makes sense in a case where some sort of young kid throws a rock through his neighbor's window because he's you know being a silly young kid or she's being a silly young mm -hmm. kid. And so they have a, a restorative justice conference where the families get together and they reconcile the community and they, you know, that's all fine. But, the, you know, I just to lay my cards on the table, my view with respect to the use of restorative justice and, and the idea of forgiving officially in the legal process um, for sexual assault and domestic violence strikes me as um, not a great idea because the whole idea of restorative justice is the assumption that before the offense in question there was a baseline of justice, whereas crimes like sexual assault, crimes like domestic violence overwhelmingly before the assault, there was a baseline of injustice and patriarchal structural inequality that not only allowed the offense to happen, but informs the nature of the offense. And so to, to, for the court system to ask the perpetrator and victim to come together to restore something that is already so broken um, strikes me as a waste of resources. But I'm, So I'm not a great fan of restorative justice in this context. But. And, and each thing is so different. I mean, there's stranger rape, there's family rape, there's incest, there's, you know, it's, people are so different with what they want and what they need and what, how big their hearts are. I, I feel like it would be really wrong of me to give a prescription because I, I don't have one. Go ahead. Absolutely, I'm, I'm sure. Absolutely, in India, we now have a. We, one of the big rules that the women's movement fought for was that any time there's a woman prisoner in in the jail, there has to be a woman police officer there, because there was so much rape. It was like you went to jail and you were raped. So you know, not that all women are good and all men are bad, but it definitely helped with the statistics. So I think diversity in gender, race, everything, is a big deal. It, it's made a big difference. In and again, not. I mean, sometimes the sometimes you're better off with a male police officer or a male prosecutor, sure. you know, for lots of different reasons. And women, it's, 
sometimes have a tendency to want to distance themselves from different types of offenses because they want to feel as if they're safe from it. And, and if you're ever picking a jury on a rape case, you probably don't want a lot of women on it. Right. Because <laughs> you're likely to get an acquittal. You want a lot of fathers on it. Um, but uh, so it's not, I wouldn't say that it's a magic, uh, magic answer to have more diversity either across gender or race uh, or other factors, but it helps. Did you say if the jury had more women, you'd be more likely to get an acquittal? Yeah, yeah. With, yeah, in my experience, female jurors on rape cases are um, very likely to want to blame the victim in order to sort of put themselves in a safe place. Mm -hmm. Kind of, well, she went, you know, she did go into his room with them, and they were kissing, and they had been drinking, and well, you know, what did she think was going to happen? So I would not do that, so. Well, plus, if you're, if you've been raped, you don't get to be on the jury. When I became a citizen, when I got called for jury duty, one of the cases was a rape case, and the first thing the judge asked was anyone who has been sexually abused or knows anyone who's sexually abused, raise your hand, and three-quarters of us walked out of the courtroom. So all the women who've actually experienced this don't get to be on the jury. You know? so, and also, I, I find in my own experience also that because there's this fear in women of wanting to protect, I have that too, we all have that. Even the, the more stupid comments made to me have actually been by women, not men. You know, the, the really dumb ones. Because there's this thing of, you know, I have to make it so that it can't happen to me. So let me blame you somehow. And they, it's not a conscious thing, but it happens. Whereas for a man, it's not quite as easy to relate to you, so they can be indignant on your behalf. <laughs> so, you know. But. Can I ask them a question? Yes. So I, it's rare that I get to be in a room full of folks who are mostly in undergrad. Um, and so, Somebody had talked about what's going to change this, and I'm, I want to ask you guys, what, what is it that's going to change this? I've been waiting for this to change for a long time, <laughs> and I'm just wondering what things do you see that are happening that are positive in Villanova or elsewhere in the world? What things do you think are holding back change? Can I, what, what can we be doing? Um, I
think that's like something people need to be exposed to in college. So thankfully we have the diversity department, so that helps a little bit. I really agree with her. I think there are so many courses that should be a requirement for just like, especially with social justice, and it's an elective. Mm -hmm. As opposed to like, and I do appreciate the core requirements here at Villanova, but I think it should be like throughout the nation, especially in high school, there's so, so much focus on a certain type of history, but that's from one perspective. Why is African-American studies an elective mm -hmm. as opposed to a requirement? If, if we are all Americans and that's our culture now, you know? So a change of, of education reform. Go ahead. I think you're going to see the most change and or um, widespread impact is just better sex ed in high school, uh, public, public high school. I think that is, I think, the most effective like first step that you can take universally because not only does it help with all kinds of public health issues, but, uh, you know, when people are first learning about, you know, they're exploring their sexuality um, in that regard. I, I mean, I think India statistically is one of the nations where people are, I think females specifically, lose their virginity to the latest. I think it ranges in the 20s, whereas somewhere in the United States it's, early, it's closer between 15 and 17. Um, but in general, I, I don't know if there's sexual health education in India in public schools or because the school system is different, but I think here especially that is, I think, the most, uh, the best first step. Well, not just in schools, also in families. I mean, my ideal situation is one like we have in my family where my daughter's already so sick of hearing us talk about sex that she finds it totally boring. <laughs> Which is actually great for a preteen because by the time she's interested in the information and she needs it and she's too embarrassed to ask us, she'll have it. You know, just to make it not, not a, a big deal. And I agree, sex ed is a, is a big deal to have. But to the extent that like it's difficult to change the existing patriarchy and the existing family dynamics for it to go through public schools in the United States, at least the information is there for the children, even if their family dynamic isn't right. as, as where it should be. Right. Thank you, and I also I also feel like you know it's a, there's a danger to that, which is that the people who often do talk about things, it's always in a fear-mongering kind of. As a girl, your job is to be safe, but that's I don't agree with that either. I think your as a girl, your job is to be powerful, and and as a boy, your job is to be respectful. So there's there of course you can bring it up, but you can also bring it up in a way that I, I mean my greatest fear is that my daughter is a nervous person. I don't I don't want that. Wanted to go out there and live life and take risks. So, but in order to take risks, you have to be a little educated because if if something happens to her, it's not going to be her fault. No, it's not really up to her to change her behavior. But it's good good for her to know things.